You know, in the 1800s, an English philosopher and economist named John Stuart Mill argued that human beings are creatures that long to obtain the greatest amount of necessities, conveniences, and luxuries with the smallest quantity of labor and physical self-denial. Now that's a big fancy way of saying that he believed we are hardwired to maximize our benefits in this life while simultaneously hardwired to minimize our sacrifices to get those benefits. In other words, the Gospel according to John Stuart Mill would be this, it's more blessed to get than to give. Now looking at our society today, it would seem that we, by and large, have taken Mill at his word, that it is more blessed to get than to give. The so-called American dream that we have turns out to be rather Darwinian. Whatever it takes for us to get the most stuff, the most pleasure, the most security, we'll do it. It's survival of the fittest and a free market. It's buy or be bought. It's be the boss or get bossed around. And I really think that it's Mill's line of self-centering utilitarian thinking that's gotten us into this very selfish, hyper-greedy mess in which we're now living. We believe that following our own heart is the ultimate virtue. Doing and saying and getting whatever we want, that's the greatest thing you can do in this life. Somehow ignoring the fact that in this country alone, that if 340 million of us are following our own heart, we are going in 340 million different directions. So is it any wonder why we're so hopelessly divided and at war with each other in our society today? If we're only thinking about number one, and there's 340 million number ones, then we're going to have a problem as a civilization. And we're seeing that, aren't we? So as it turns out, though, contemporary secular science is finally catching up to ancient spiritual wisdom. Isn't that interesting how often that happens? Human beings are not wired for greed, as it turns out. The selfish gene is a myth. Developments in neuroscience, that is brain science, show that when we give to people, when we're generous, it actually lights up a part of our midbrain, which is associated with... Um, Chemicals like dopamine and serotonin, the happy hormones. That's what you feel when you take a bite of the first bite of that Chick-fil-A sandwich you've been waiting for. When dopamine rushes into your brain. Uh, when the Bulldogs score another touchdown and that you just, you're feeling great. When you step outside this week and it's a brisk 65 and windy outside, that, that rush you get, that's dopamine. And that's what's released in our brain when we give. It's interesting, God designed us that way. Now, by way of contrast, the late cultural critic Mark Fisher coined the term that he applied widely to our society. He called us depressive hedonics, or, de or the term depressive hedonism. You know, hedonism is when 
You just seek whatever makes you happy. But he talks about how that is actually a depressive trait in us. That our culture is so caught up in it that we have an inability to do anything except pursue pleasure. That's the only thing that we can think about. That's why we're constantly spending money to to get rid of minor inconveniences. Why people seem to be getting... um, more and more discontent with the wonders of our society. Because if there's anything that uh, is not actively pursuing pleasure, we feel as if something is missing in our lives, in our hearts, in our souls. So the tragedy of our modern existence is even though we live in a place with more luxury, more opportunity, more safety, more access to everything than ever before, And yet, our selfish pursuits have made us feel, even though we live in this great era in which we do, not perfect, a lot of problems, a lot of scary things out there, but there's so many wonderful things in our world that we, in this time and place, feel more isolated and miserable and lonely than ever before. How is that possible? We waste away with everything at our fingertips. And I'm convinced it's because we've forgotten this ancient divine wisdom that true glory is in generosity. That's what we're missing in our lives, I'm convinced. The glory of generosity. Now before we dive into these five or so verses we'll be studying this morning, I just want to recollect where we've been. We're closing up in our time in Philippians. And you remember that This is Paul's letter to a small congregation, probably not unlike ours, in Eastern Europe, in Macedonia particularly, which is north of Greece. And it's all about encouraging this congregation who's struggling, that's trying their best, to remain humble, to be unified, and to be generous, to be joyful and content in even their hard days. And he has nothing but encouragement for these people. Even when he offers... You know, admonishment, it's with such a loving and open heart. He really admires this little group because they've been through so much. You know, they're in a military outpost of the Roman Empire. There's big cults to Rome and their gods and, and there's a lot of pride in the economy, a lot of pride in military accomplishments in Rome. And these Christians who were once part of that have left it all behind so they can worship Jesus and be good even to their enemies. There's a lot to admire in that. And they've been through so much in pursuing that love of Jesus. And so Paul's whole point of his letter has been to remind them that they must remember that the God who began a good work in them, Philippians 1.6, will bring it to completion. All the things they're struggling through in this life, they don't have to worry about the end result the God who started that good work in them will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. And the way He'll bring it to completion through them is through having the same mind of Jesus Christ. You remember in Philippians 2, we got that beautiful hymn in verses 5-11 through of Christ who didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped or exploited, but humbled Himself by taking on the form of a man and humbled Himself even further by going to a cross. And God exalted Him that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Have that mind in yourself. 
of humility, of loving, because ultimately, at the end of that road, contrary to what our secular world would tell us, is glory and resurrection and giving and humility. And so, that's what Paul has been telling this church. Reminding them. This is the point. And so now as he's concluding his message to them and writing his few last closing words, he commends them for their past willingness to give. We talked about that last week. How they were so generous. Even when they didn't have a lot, they gave so generously to others that had need. And how he's reminding them that that's, that willingness to do that in the past, keep that up, Philippians, because you will experience the glory of generosity if you keep on that path. Now, looking at our passage this morning, last week, we ended with Paul saying to the Philippians, he said, you did well by partnering with me and my hardship. We read that in verse 14. And even more so today, we begin with Paul saying to them, and you Philippians know that in the early days of the Gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. Now, I don't know about you, but that's kind of shocking. Paul is planted all these different churches in Macedonia and Asia Minor and in and around Jerusalem and Samaria. And yet he says here, in those early days, the Philippians were the only church that continued to support him. After all that Paul has done for these new converts, literally saved their lives, saved their souls by coming and bearing the good news of Jesus, after he's helped establish these congregations and appointed deacons and elders and ministers and, and, and preachers and teachers, after he's given them a, a, a self-sustaining body of Christian fellowship and community, most of them left him to rot in a Roman prison. Man. But not the Philippians. They remembered him. And even more than that, Paul says that their generous support to him is tantamount to them entering into his ministry. Them sharing in his sufferings as well. The Philippians are not in jail. It's true. But the spiritual fruit that Paul reaps because of their support in prayer, their support in resources and finances, the the work that Paul is doing, the hardship he is going through, is because they supported and supplied him when no one else would. Paul can continue on and doing what he's doing. We get letters from prison epistles when he's writing to the Colossians and his Philippians and all these different groups, he's able to have pen and paper. Uh, he's able to have a, somebody that can write for him since a lot of people think his eyesight was probably bad as he got older. He's able to have this because the Philippians supported him. There are passages in our Bible today that exist because the Philippians gave generously to Paul when no one else would. And look at the fruit today. Look at this book that's so encouraging to us. I've spoken to several of you. The Philippians is one of my favorite books in the Bible. You can thank the generosity of poor Christians in Eastern Europe that barely had two cents in their pocket and gave both of those cents 
to Paul so he could write this letter. Think of how they've benefited you because of their generosity. Christians, don't forget that your contributions to the Lord's work make an eternal difference in this world. Makes large and long and sweeping generational differences. Think about how when you, like today, when we take up our benevolence offering, or when we, you know, it's, it's a food drive month and we help with the Lilburn Co-op, think about how you make a difference to human beings, to families in need in our community of Lilburn here. Think about when you give money to missions, how that gives Indian orphans who have no place to stay a home and an education and a future. Think of how John and Mion Humphrey were here just a few weeks ago. How that you're supporting them means that Chinese immigrants who are in a country that is not their own and looking for hope and looking for love find the Gospel of Jesus Christ through them. And take it back to their country that's in such turmoil these days. Think of the uh, Burkinabes in West Africa. How these people have a new future, how they're becoming pastors and Sunday school teachers and just good Christian people because of the support that we give to the Rochelles. Uh, think of how when we give money to David and Misan, how they're helping Turkish refugees, people that have lost their homes that are living now in Clarkston, Georgia, on the other side of the world and a place that's so different from them. Yeah, we have Chick-fil-A and Waffle House and we think that's great, but that's weird, strange food to them. We speak a weird language and they'd want to be in their own homeland, but they're here instead. And think about the people that are coming to faith, here even in our own community, because of your prayerful support. Your sacrificial giving is entering into the suffering of your beloved missionaries. You're partnering with them in their tough days to bring the Gospel to people. You are investing in God's eternal kingdom when you generously give what you could spend on yourself or tuck away for a rainy day. But when you say, God's given me what I need. Let somebody who doesn't have get something from what I can give. Think about this, how there are people, because of your direct contributions of resources and time and prayers to these ventures, there will be human beings, body and soul, that will be with you for all eternity because you decided to invest in them and the Gospel work. Folks, what a responsibility. What an opportunity. What a privilege for us. Never forget that Jesus was serious when He said in Matthew 6.21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Is your treasure locked away in a bank security box? Is your treasure locked away in stocks? Is your treasure tied up in a home or a sports car? Or is your treasure invested in people? in the images of God. The people that will exist for all of eternity. It's clear that for the Philippians, their heart is with Paul and his Gospel ministry. And that's where their treasure is. And what he can do with their help 
to bring the good news of Jesus to people just like them. See, because people contributed to Paul's mission early, when he visited a place like Macedonia, these people became Christians. (laughs) See, they are products of somebody else's investment. Even when Paul's ministering in places like Thessalonica, who should be hosting Paul, putting him up, you know, helping with his expenditures, we read that the Philippians were the ones that were taking care of him. That's how seriously they took giving. They understood. They could see through all the fog of commercialism, of, of hedonism, and see the true treasure is in the work of God for people. So even when he was in Thessalonica, Philippians said, no, let us help. And maybe even more shockingly, when Paul was in a wealthy city like Corinth, nice gated communities and just so much arts and culture, Corinth of all places, who were so messed up, that church was so screwed up, and were so proud, we read that Paul wouldn't even accept money from them. Kent Hughes notes that. He didn't want anything to, to do with their money. He loved them as a, as, a, as a church, but they were he had to work on them a little bit first. And so it was only the Philippians that had the honor, the blessing, the eternal privilege of investing in Paul's eternal work. They gave not f- just freely of their wallets, but what Paul saw is that they gave freely of their hearts. Now, as a pastoral warning here, Kent Hughes, who is a pastor himself, he has a good and admonishing word for us. You know, in a church like Maranatha, where I know we're very generous, as, as a, a smaller church can be, very generous with our missionaries. We, give, we have good missions giving. It can be easy for us to know that in the back of our minds and rest on our laurels. But Hughes says, the call to reach the world has not gripped our souls unless we ourselves are giving sacrificially to that end. So in other words, if we know that our church takes care of that and we're good about that, but we never of ourselves give to that work, never say, I'm going to forgo something nicer for me this month so I can support others, then he says, the the work of the Gospel has just not gripped our souls like it ought to have. C.S. Lewis famously said that your love for, I'm wildly paraphrasing here, but your love for Jesus and the Gospel should mean that you give sacrificially in such a way that you can't afford to do all the things that you would like. That you can't go all the places, that you can't visit all the places, you can't eat at all the restaurants that you like, you can't uh, go to all the movies and, and get all the streaming services or whatever. I mean, because it's costly for normal people to give to the, the work of God. But when we are generous in our efforts to support missions, to support evangelism, then we, like the Philippians, can truly and really and historically and actually and literally say that we are joining in the suffering work of Paul and all Christian missionaries. That's how Paul couches it for us. Church, don't ever lose sight of this eternally significant work, the ever lasting glory of Christian generosity that will far outshine and outlast everything on planet Earth. We think that styrofoam or plastic doesn't have a half-life, that it will be around forever. Your generosity will last longer and have more of an impact 
than anything we could produce in this world. We worship a God who is generous. We are saved by a Messiah who is generous. And so if we are conformed to the image of God's own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that means that if we become more like Him, we too will become increasingly generous in our words, in our thoughts, in our actions, and of course, in our giving. Now folks, a preacher talking about money has always raised eyebrows. I literally had a nightmare last night about preaching this passage and people thinking, he's just asking for money. I nightmare about that. I rarely, if I ever have, if usually I have nightmares, it's, oh, I'm preaching and I don't have my Bible and I didn't prepare a sermon. That kind of, you know. But I specifically had a nightmare <laughs> that people were going to get mad because they thought I was asking for money. Uh, preachers talking about money has always raised eyebrows. It certainly did in Paul's day. He feels the need to head this off at the pass. And we know today in America, especially after we've seen at least 50 years, if not more so, gross manipulations and financial abuses and hedonistic decadences that prosperity preachers have spewed across television screens for decades now. We're to the point that, goodness gracious, HBO and, and Warner Brothers, and they're all making these movies about uh, greedy preachers that are money launderers and drug dealers. It's, that's, that's the way that our wider culture sees a lot of Bible-believing Christians as just fools that get in on some multi-level marketing scheme or some, or, or some um, uh, uh, what do they call it, um, pyramid scheme to enrich the pastor at the top while everybody else suffers below. That's the way that we're perceived a lot because of those people. But rest assured, any Christian pastor, no matter their denomination or what they say their theology is, any Christian pastor who says he needs a private jet or a multi-million dollar mansion or a vacation home is one who is not interested in the God of generosity. I don't care if he says Jesus Christ over and over and over again. He's not talking about the real Jesus Christ if, it's, if he's lining his pockets and getting into... His, his nice new Tesla with his $1,000 sneakers and going to lunch with Justin Bieber that day. He's not interested in the Gospel of Jesus Christ and a Gospel of radical generosity where we say our treasure is not this. It's Jesus. It's Him and what He wants for this world. So anticipating that this struggling people that are already going above and beyond might, might feel like they're being guilted into giving even more. They're, you know, they're giving a lot and they're like, well, I can barely get bread for my babies. Paul says, no, no, I'm not asking for me. Verse 17, he tries to be fully transparent. Not that I seek this gift. It's not for me. But I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. See, Paul is not trying to plant churches in Rome with their money and, and name them the St. Paul the Apostle Memorial Baptist Church. He's not going on great Philippians uh, book reading and book signing tours where he reads this letter and he says, this program is 
was made possible by a grant from the Paul of Tarsus Foundation, where it makes him look really good. He's not interested in his own reputation. He doesn't even want to take credit for the good work that he does. He says, I want to do this so that it is credited to you. The supporters, the givers of this Gospel work that's going out in the world. Every soul that's saved, every life that's transformed, every sinner who finds a friend in Jesus, that prophet is not credited to St. Paul. It's credited to these poor, unknown, to us at least, nameless Christians of ancient Philippi. Now I'm sure this surprised the Philippians who were giving out of love and joy. They were giving out of the right reason, not because they wanted fame or credit, and yet Paul wanted them to benefit from their generosity. Doesn't it surprise you? Let's just think about it in our own personal terms. Doesn't it surprise you when our missionaries come with photos of of people, of faces, of smiling faces? We just saw this a few weeks ago. People getting baptized. People being reunited. Marriages being uh, mended. Children and parents reconciling because of the work of the Gospel. It has that much power. It can undo years of trauma and harm and all sorts of toxicity in relationships. Doesn't it amaze you when they show you all these faces that they've worked with? They spent a hard time staying up late doing the translation work, getting to know the culture, having to deal with stomach issues because they're adjusting like the highest to eating bugs in Papua New Guinea for the sake of the gospel and, and going to places and sleeping on hard cots and, and doing all these things. And yet they stand up here and with full sincerity and honesty and says, Your generosity, Maranatha, is the reason this person is a Christian today. Doesn't that always surprise you to hear? They're not just blowing smoke. That's what Paul said to the Philippians. The work that you give to missions, the work that you give to evangelism, when people come to Christ, that's a credit to you and your account. And this is precisely why Paul wants us to know that giving matters. God doesn't lose track of our efforts and the shuffle of paperwork (laughs) and the headache of taxes. He knows and sees our meagerest efforts and He still credits us with the glory of life-transforming generosity. No one else around you might know you're giving sacrificially. But the Lord who, by the power of His Word, spun a trillion stars into orbit, He knows what you've done. He knows what you're foregoing for the sake of the Gospel. He remembers and He doesn't forget those that give to His work. Even if your own family doesn't know. Even if your own church doesn't know. Folks, when Paul asks them to give, he does so for their benefit. Not just his, but for theirs. So here's my question to you this morning. To my knowledge, none of you are super rich. And if you are, please take me for a spin in your Porsche and take me to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. But I know that's none of you here. 
But if you want to find real joy and satisfaction and blessing in this hard and difficult and sorrowful life, become a giver in Jesus' name. Become a giver for the Gospel's sake. Folks, you will not be disappointed and you're investing in kingdom work. You won't. You will not miss that money. I promise you. You will not miss that time. You will not miss that prayer. You will not miss that effort. You just won't. God will supply all of your needs. Listen, God supplies all of your needs when your selfishest day is long. Why would we think any differently if we're being obedient and giving to His work? He'll supply what you need, so don't rob yourself of the glory of giving. Don't do it. (laughs) A lot of the sorrow and tragedy and heartache we bring into this room on Sunday morning, I think, I know in my heart, because I was selfish that week. I feel like I didn't lift a finger for anybody. Didn't give or help anybody, even when I know I could have or should have. What a thing we rob ourselves of. Paul continues in verse 18a, reminding them. Again, it's not about him cashing in. <laughs> I've received everything in full, and I have an abundance. He is writing this while he is shackled to a Roman centurion that will hit him in the mouth if he speaks out of turn. I'm living in abundance as he's sleeping on a hay cot in a dank Roman prison. He can say that with full honesty because Paul realizes that he's got money in the bank. And I'm not talking about the the one, the few coins with with Caesar's face on it. No, his salary has been paid by the support of the Philippians. It's back, not by the FDIC, it's back, better yet, by the Lord who has assured Paul that in all of his needs, God will supply in abundance. Again, the man says this while in prison. I can't imagine myself (laughs) talking that way if I was sitting in a waiting room of a doctor's office. I have everything I need. Or waiting for my oil to get changed. I'm living in abundance. (laughs) And it's a minor inconvenience. Paul's in prison. He might get his head chopped off the next day. I'm doing fine, folks. But in the second part of the verse, he he switches from that transactional language of you know I've I've got I've got everything and need I have everything uh, or I've got everything in abundance that I need. Then he switches to familiar Old Testament language about sacrifice. He says, "I'm fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided." A fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. In other words, their gifts to him through Epaphroditus are akin to the aroma offerings that priests would put on the great altar in the Old Testament. A sacrifice that its smoky fumes reach the heavens and God takes a deep breath and it pleases him with its wonderful smell. Now, this is a little anthropomorphism. God's not a big man in the sky waiting for the sense of brisket to get up to him. You know, he's not waiting for, you know, this nice Israelite barbecued beef to reach him. The smell that he smells is the generous or the generosity, the generous spirit of the people that offer it for his glory. 
That's what God senses. The smoke going up is just a visual picture for us, simple-minded people who can't comprehend the spirit world and life. But the same thing is happening here. When they offer those thanksgiving offerings that ascended to God in that ritual and ceremony, when you give generously, that transcends the skies and the heavens and God recognizes it and it pleases Him immensely. Now, God doesn't need our money. He doesn't need the poor Christians of Philippi to give anything. But He asks them to give to reveal their willingness to give out of their true love for Him. To express their love and their joy and their reliance on God. And it's a fragrant offering. It's one that He doesn't forget or overlook or ignore. And so often, again, when we feel people don't notice or appreciate our efforts, we get discouraged. But the Lord always sees it. It's always pleasing to Him when you give generously. And He promises it won't go to waste. And so we get to the high point of this passage now. Verse 19. And we read this, and my God, based on everything we've read before, and my God will supply all your needs. Is he going to supply some of them? Maybe most of them? God, let me say it again for the people in the back as they say, God will supply all of your needs. Every need you have, he will supply it according to the riches in glory, His riches in glory in Jesus Christ. Oh, how I wish I believed this strongly in my bones. Folks, we don't worship a stingy, unfeeling deity. We worship the Lord, the Maker of heaven and earth, the Father of our Jesus Christ, the God of all things, and He is infinite in His riches abundant, overly, embarrassingly abundant in His generosity to us. So when will we learn to rely on Him? To trust that His riches are for us. God has no need of anything. He's got riches to give away. When will we believe that? When will we trust that God Almighty, who did not spare the own his own son of infinite value and worth beyond everything in the cosmos who did not spare that son for our sake will give us all that we need. When will we really believe that? Wall Street and Silicon Valley can only take away from us. Even if they say, invest in this and you'll get back. No, they're just taking our money from us, really. They don't care what happens. Bank of America and Wells Fargo only charge us. Oh, they protect your money. But they, pay you, they, they make you pay to protect your money. And if something goes wrong, you're on your own. Our landlords and mortgage lenders don't care about our souls. We might be barely making rent or the mortgage but we could be wasting away. And they don't care. When our landlords send us from... They always send us uh, emails from this big company out in California. Always send us emails. 
Oh, how to prepare for Hurricane Ian. We're really concerned about your welfare. I was like, no, you want to make sure that if a storm comes through here on October 1st, you're going to see that check come through. That's what they're concerned with. That's what the world is concerned with. Money, taking, getting. But the God who made us in His image and who is remaking us in the image of His Son takes supreme interest in us experiencing the joy of giving. You know how I know? Because when we come to this table this morning, it costs the very body and blood of the God-man Jesus for us to come in peace. God's own Son put to death on a cross naked and whipped and despised and mocked so we could be at peace with the Lord. That's how generous God is. He takes on that humiliation, that shame. 2,000 years later, uh, these stand-up comedians and social media personalities and TikTok influencers are still laughing and joking about uh, Jesus and how weak and pathetic He and His people are. And yet, out of His great and generous and abundant heart, that's the very people for whom Jesus came to love and to die for. Well, we were wandering strangers chasing after every little idol that promised that if we sold our souls, we'd get just a modicum of pleasure and half the time it was a lie. When we read the contract but not the fine print that the wages of sin was death, that the reward we get for betraying our Maker by turning our backs on Him is death and hell and everything with it, when we plunge this world into darkness and tragedy and death, when we perpetuate a world of debt and sex slavery and drug addiction and wrongful imprisonment and hopelessness, that's what it means for us to be takers. But Jesus of Nazareth, God in human form, did not count equality with God, with equal dignity with God, a thing to be exploited. He gave of Himself freely with tears in His eyes for our sorrows, with love in His heart for us wretched sinners. He gave Himself to be nailed to a cross, wretched and alone, so He could bear all of our guilt and set us free from its debt forever. So when we come to this table here in just a moment, we remember just how generous our God is with us. He secured our new life by giving up His own. So here we also remember, however, that God has the last word. Not Satan, not anyone else. And you know what the Lord says in the book of Revelation to those He appears before, shining and resurrected in His transcendent glory. And we shake and rattle and roll and, and are terrified we're going to be annihilated by this holy being that we've been stingy with our whole life. You know what He says to us instead? Don't be afraid. Don't worry. Look, He says, I was dead, but now I'm alive forevermore. And I've locked away hell and death forever. Spins that little key on his finger and tucks it back in his pocket. All the things that torment you, I've gotten rid of. They're locked up and thrown into dark, outer darkness forever. 
So come sit at my table. Eat and drink. And I love how Russell Moore puts this, the Baptist ethicist. He said, eat and drink and be merry, for yesterday we were dead. (laughs) Enjoy my riches. My generosity both now and forever. So what else can we say this morning than to end with Paul's own words in verse 20. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to Your table now, open our hearts to the generosity of testifying to Your goodness to us. Open our hearts to the generosity towards one another to be good givers and cheerful givers this week. Make us uh, into people that love to experience the glory of generosity so that we can enjoy the blessing of Your glory. And we ask this all in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.